presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. How you doing? Hey, here we are. Some technical issues to start the show, but hey, that's live radio for you. It's our fault. We're morons. We're technical morons. What did you do? You went to school for this stuff. You're supposed to save me. Don't let me mess stuff up. The silent assassin, Matt Costa, you're supposed to know this stuff. I apologize. It, it, it's, you know, we think we have a plan going, and then all it takes is for one thing not to work, and for me to say, hey, just try this, and for Matt to actually listen to me, and then forget it. Monkey wrench. Total monkey wrench. I blame Frank Stallone. Y- you know, Frank Stallone might be listening. Oh, no, he's not, because... I, yeah, I think Jackie Stallone is. Frank Stallone can't listen, because uh, we're not live streaming, so... <laughs> All right, well, it doesn't matter because we still have an excellent show for you tonight. Uh, something a little bit different than we've usually talked about here on Spooky South Coast. Uh, now, we've talked about the paranormal, uh, but one of the things that we want to talk about is just the strange, the unexplained, the unknown, the mysteries of this world. Uh, it's something that we don't really touch upon outside of the paranormal field, uh, but there's probably so much things that we could talk about. We could have a whole other radio program just talking about you know, the natural wonders of the world and, and man-made wonders and things that we just don't totally understand yet. And that's one of the subjects that we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about ancient stone sites of New England uh, and and maybe some from around the world, depending on uh, what our callers would like to talk about, with uh, David Goudsward, who has written a couple of books. I didn't butcher your name then. Surprisingly close. Okay. Well, why don't, why don't you tell everybody the exact pronunciation? Well, the... Proper pronunciation would actually involve spitting on the microphone because it's true <laughs> Dutch. So we'll just go with Goutsword and let it go with that. Okay. Now, and th- that must be, uh, you know, part of the, the culture of a lot of these people who have researched these stone sites because a lot of it is considered Norse or at one time was believed Norse in origin. So, you know, you have Olaf and, and Gunderson and all these names that uh, involve in the field. So you're just adding one more. In. What the heck? What's one more unpronounceable name among friends? And you're not from around here, actually. You, you made the long trip to be on Spooky South Coast tonight. That's right. I flew all the way up here just for you guys. <laughs> well, that and the parents up in Haverhill, but we'll, we'll let that slide for yeah, now. They're, well, they're not listening, so they don't, you know. So, uh, and because, you know, we're not streaming live, so <laughs> they can't be listening. The. <laughs> So that's a recurring theme here tonight. <laughs> so, but you do come up here, uh, and and you said that you come up here to give a presentation as well, right? Yeah. Um, basically, the new book is out: Ancient Stone Sites of New England, et cetera, et cetera. So we <clears throat> came on up, did a few programs. We did one in uh, St. Bernard's Church down the road a bit last Saturday, and we just did one in the foot of the Westford Night this week and uh, Mystery Hill. And it's it's. I was going to say it's different for a, a person from, from Florida to come up and write books about stone sites in New England, but if your parents are from here, then I guess you can understand. Well, I was raised in Haverhill, mm-hmm. so I literally lived within five miles of Mystery Hill. In fact, I was doing some math this week, and it turns out um, this is my 30th year of visiting Mystery Hill. Wow. Uh, started back in high school and uh, pretty much have never gotten away from it. 
And what was it that now? This is for those who are unfamiliar. This is what's considered to be America's Stonehenge. Yes, um, and it's uh, it's outside of North Salem, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Right off of one eleven. Uh, it is officially called America Stonehenge now. Like old timers like me still call it Mystery Hill. <laughs> um, if you're really, really an old timer, it's the Patty Caves. But uh, you don't hear much of that one anymore. And why don't you just explain to people exactly what it is in case they haven't been? Boy, if I could do that, I'd be in business. <laughs> um, in a nutshell, we're talking about one acre of stone-built structures, chambers, and it's all centered around a four-and-a-half-ton sacrificial table, which large granite slab with a groove on it. The central acre of property is surrounded by a large acreage of standing stones in stone walls that, when viewed from a central location in the main ch- area, align astronomically with the solstice, equinox, etc. And it's kind of funny to think that whatever ancient civilization uh, or built these uh, structures... Uh, or or use these structures for such purposes, and we can't really comprehend it today. You know, it just shows you the difference in in focus. Absolutely, and part of the problem is we don't have a frame of reference to work from. It's mm-hmm. not like we can say we know it was the Celts, therefore this does that, this does that. Uh, if we knew that part, the rest of it would fall into place. Of course, if it, we wouldn't be talking about it if it all fell into place either. That, so I true. suppose it's fair trade off. And not only that, though, but as we've become modernized and we have this high-tech scientific equipment, things that we use every day, you know, the high-tech scientific stuff right here in the studio, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, it makes us less reliant on the things that older generations used. Absolutely. Um, take a walk through old Sturbridge Village sometime, and there are things there that if I was forced to go back to that age, I could not function. Um, I wouldn't know how to make soap using a lye stone. I wouldn't know how to make apple cider using a press. I'm not sure I could u- actually use the right end of a rake at this point in time. <laughs> it's, well, been, it's been a while. You must have seen my yard because I don't know how either. I mean, if you take a kid even from today, take away his MP3 player and give him a 45, and he's going to say, hey, what's this? Yeah, Frisbee. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much the way that it goes over time. And, and as, unless somebody is actually using these sites for that purpose and continuing that tradition, then it just goes by the wayside. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't a lot of written history back then. Everything was, was transferred orally. Uh, and I mean, it depends really on what the actual origins of a lot of these sites are. Some of them are considered... You know, colonial times. Uh, the Newport Tower was one that, for something that you know is uh, <laughs> doesn't really have a, 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 a actual ancestry assigned to it yet. It, Dighton Rock, another one. Dighton Rock is actually the most interesting out of all of them because it's the only one where they found a solution that everybody liked and it stuck. Newport Tower, you still have Vikings, you still have Celts, you still have, um, I guess you have Knight Templars now. You have um, colonial. Dighton Rock, Miguel Cotorreal, 1511, boom, hasn't changed ever since. That That's fairly unusual in this field because most of these sites are very dynamic. Whatever the prevalent theory is, these sites seem to develop their own personality according to whatever that frame of reference happens to be. Mystery Hill started off being Viking, then it was 9th century Irish Catholic monks, and then it was, I think it went back to Vikings for a while, and then it went to... Celt-Iberians from the Portugal, and I couldn't tell you who it is this week. I mean, what, what exactly is the accepted uh, you know, sociological, the historical 
theory in terms of who visited the New World when? Oh, that's a can of worms. Is there is there at least some agreement that there were Norse visitors prior to the arrival of the English settlers? Absolutely. You just have to go up to Lancy Meadows. And that was not the farthest south they went because there are certain floral artifacts there that prove that they came further down the coast. Um, I don't think anybody questions that the Basque fishermen were in the Newfoundland long before Columbus. So it starts there. I think it was really just a matter of something that we even see today uh, in, in different circumstances. Columbus had the name recognition is what it was uh, and, and the Catholic Church behind him. And one other little tool that people forget had just been developed, and that's the movable type. Gutenberg was able to get the word out to people a lot faster than anybody else would have previously. So, I mean, it's there's so many other people that could have came and visited. When you think about it, even the Native Americans mm-hmm. to this area are really just settlers from somewhere else that traveled across the land. They they, they had the most impressive uh, travels because they did it all by foot. So, And, and that's one of the uh, interesting things that we'll talk about, too, is how uh, some of these places were reached if they were indeed reached by Norse and, and other seafaring peoples. But we'll get into all of that. And if you'd like to join into the discussion, uh, 508-996- 0500 508-291-0500 and of course the phones are open to talk about anything to do with the paranormal uh, tonight we are focusing on these stone sites but you know if, if you have an experience that happened to you over the past week and you'd like to share we will not hesitate to to hear what you have to say and so now with these stone sites and the research that's been done on them uh, it's really just unfortunately it's what we see a lot in, in science and, and other fields a researcher ties on to one theory, and they tend to do whatever they can to push that theory. And whoever, in the end, whoever does the most work or gets the most grant money ends up being the prevalent theory. But you said that Dighton Rock is one that really hasn't had anything like that stick to it. Well, Dighton Rock also has the advantage of Fall River being predominantly Portuguese. So needless to say, they adopted that immediately as the way it was, and that's the way it stayed. Everything else in this country, and actually Dighton Rock as well, it all comes down to basically four or five people. And if you start talking about any of the major sites, Mystery Hill, um, Westford Night, um, Dighton Rock, Newport Tower, you start talking about any of them, you, you keep coming back to the same basic names. You come back to William Goodwin, as an example, who bought the Mystery Hill site because he thought it was Viking and then later changed his mind and decided it was Portsmouth and then became a 9th century Irish Catholic monk enthusiast up there. Of course, there's still no evidence the monks were there, and why they would be using a sacrificial table, hard to explain. But he also shows up as the man who first spotted the Westford Knight, which is, for those not familiar with the North Shore, a full-size military effigy carved on a ledge that apparently looks like it might be a 13th or even possibly 12th, but we'll go with 13th for tonight, 13th century Scottish knight carved where he fell in battle. Um, That's Goodwin as well. Goodwin had no use for the Dighton Rock, but the closer you got to his home base in Hartford, the less faith he had in any site. Um, He doesn't even mention the Gungiwamp site, and that's practically next door to him. Another name you see an awful lot of is Ole Bull, which is not a name a lot of people remember anymore. Ole Bull was a very famous violinist 
who was a very ardent independence movement supporter for Norway, which was, I think, owned by Denmark at the time. And he would come to this country and he'd give concerts and he'd raise awareness of Norwegian culture. And he was trying to get a statue put up in Wisconsin, and they couldn't quite make the money. So it ended up in Cambridge. And if you go down into Cambridge, there is a life-size statue of Leif Erikson sitting there pointing out to the harbor. Um, Ole Bull was so convinced that the Dighton Rock was actually a v- artifact that proved the Norwegians were here first, he bought it. And he prepared to move it back to Norway, where it became the symbol of the independence movement. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, it turns out that as a national of Norway, he couldn't own property in the United States. He tried to give it to the committee raising the money for the statue. turns out they weren't equipped to handle property, so it ended up being given to the Old Bay Colony Historical Society, who then gave it to the state when the museum went into effect. That's Everybody's interwoven, and basically everything in that time period comes down to these same people. So it's, it's their theories being modified, but it's basically their frame of reference that's influencing everything being done today. And was there... I mean, there's obviously a lot of discourse going on uh, while this uh, research is going on, but it just seems like uh, at some point certain sides gave in a little bit and just let some other theory become more prevalent. Is that, uh, like we said, is that you know research funding? Is that uh, time and effort, somebody passing away before they can complete their research? Or Well, other than Dighton Rock, I don't think anybody else has ever gotten funding. That's, that, that definitely makes a difference. Dighton Rock was given to the state. The state built Cofferdam underneath it. They put a museum around it. They, it actually has climate control. It's got better air conditioning there than I do in my house in Florida. <laughs> but the Mystery Hill had to be privately owned by Goodwin. It then became it's still privately owned by Bob Stone up in Salem. Uh, Westford Knight is along a city street. and At this point, I think it's so badly eroded from salt and acid rain that they're never going to be able to figure out what it actually is. Titan is, I said, um, Newport well, Newport's sitting out there in the middle of everything. So um, I don't think it's funding as much as just outliving your enemies. Yeah, that, that seems, to be, uh, seems to be the case. And unfortunately, the, a lot of these sites, like you said, aren't really surviving the modern time. For as long as they've been around, it's, it seems like lately uh, with our pollution and just with man encroaching upon every square inch of Earth, it's, not, it's getting harder and harder to save these sites. But something like you know, Mystery Hill is... is being privately owned that helps to maintain it, and there's there's a lot of sites that uh, I think over the the next few years, the next decade or so, we'll see maybe private funding swoop in and, and take care of some of these a little bit. We almost have to at this point because we're losing them fast. I mean, every time you see a bulldozer go by, you have to wonder what stone chamber, what standing stone is no longer there. I mean, even Bob Stone up at Mystery Hill when he was putting in his parking lot. They weren't looking for standing stones. They weren't looking for an astronomical calendar. That actually showed up a good 20 years after he bought the site. So he destroyed standing stones to build the parking lot because he didn't know to look for them. Um, In the last couple of years, again with the parking lots up there, they uncovered a major Indian settlement that probably should have been figured out beforehand, but it's, it's a good place for it, and it's a good place for them to be able to use it. But if you don't know what you're looking for, it's pretty hard to save it. I gotta say, I really never would have given this a second thought 
uh, until recently when uh, I started reading your books and I started uh, researching the topic for this discussion and also getting out into, you know, like the Freetown State Forest area and, and some of these more protected places that are off the grid uh, from the main roads. And then I started to realize just how much stuff is out there, how much artifacts could be found. Uh, and like you said, you know, you're just rolling in with a bulldozer and pushing it out of the way and not even realizing what's what's in it. I mean, a lot of this this fill, the stuff that we scoop up and they transfer transfer other places to to fill in sinkholes or whatever they do with you know what they excavate. By that point, it's so removed from its original site that you can no longer figure out what it is anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that's the you know the archaeological conundrum. It, there's, there is hope. I mean, it's not as bleak as we kind of make it sound because, of course, we look at the worst-case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, the town of Danville up beyond Salem found a beehive hut. Well, stone structure anyway. Let's not get classification. And they have made it a park out of it. It's hard to get to, so it's fairly well protected, but they did preserve it. They don't know what it is, but it's safe. So, there, there, I mean, there are success stories. It just seems to, uh, I mean, in Europe, these sites are so well protected and, and so well revered, uh, maybe because they're a little bit better understood. You know, they know the history of it. They know, like you said earlier, which group to assign it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here it's just, I think, part of the, the anonymity of it is what hurts it in the long run. Well, if you look at the Lynn Dolman or the uh, North Salem, New York Dolman, if either one of those had been found in France or England, they would be, quote, unquote, Dolmans, no question about it. Because they're found in North America, they're, they're glacial erratics that just happened to come down and just happened to land on stones that were just happened to be positioned in the right place so that the, the big rock rests on top of the little rocks. One thing I'd like to get your opinion on, too, is something like these um, natural rock formations that seem to have a resemblance to uh, other things, such as profile rock. Uh, you know, supposedly the 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 story goes having the profile of uh, Metacom King Philip, and the uh, you know like the old man in the mountain. You know, just these these stone structures that seem to take a, a shape for whatever reason. Is that something that you think is really just natural erosion, or do you think there's a some sort of intelligent design behind it, one way or another? Boy, that's a tough one to call. I think you have to take it face by face, and at face value, I suppose, technically <laughs> in that case. Um, Old Man in the Mountain, that's probably just a bunch of rocks that happen to have a profile. There seems to be some sort of hard wiring in the human brain that they need to see patterns, whether they're there or not. So we sort of throw ourselves off the trail sometimes. Uh, Matt's looking at one right now on his computer. And if you go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the blog. We have links to some websites with lots of photos of some of these uh, megaliths so you can check them out yourself and, and make your own determinations as to what's on there. Well, I found one here that comes from uh, New Hampshire. It was actually carved out of uh, granite, and it was like the original old man of the mountain. Now, you said you've never seen this one I before. I have not seen that one before. Okay. I like it. It's a very nice one. I'm glad you enjoy it. (laughs) Uh, I was also able to find other pictures of profile rock, like uh, one that came from, I believe, 1908. And it's an unusual photograph of profile rock as it comes from the opposite side that uh, most people are not used to seeing. Because, as you know, in profile rock, it's kind of up there and you have to... well, what is yeah. on the other side of Profile Rock? I've actually never thought about that. Well, you've well that's up. what that photograph is from 1908. Uh, that's that this particular photograph that I was showing you. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I like about this is there's no graffiti. 
so you could yeah. get to actually see it in a. It, profile pristine. Rock is no longer a profile, unfortunately. It's it's really it's become a character. Yeah, it's really worn down, uh, both from natural forces and human forces. It's just it's not. When I went there, and I had seen photos of it online before I went. And I was expecting to see this majestic uh, stone structure. And I mean, granted, it's impressive, but the actual profile part of it has become so worn away. And I got to think a lot of that's from kids climbing down the side of it so they can be the one to spray paint their initials over the mm-hmm. face. Well, 1908 is a good time to be getting postcards of things like that. That's the height of the picnic craze. Mm. Um, Mystery Hill, even at that time, is a full, full-blown picnic. It is the place to go for the Sunday afternoon. And we're still picking China up, where people would bring their picnic basket up, spread out, because everything was stripped clean from the forest, being mined and milled and chopped down, and drop a teacup and brush it under a rock. Good heavy rain, and we'll have a full service anytime now. Yeah, thank you. All right, I think we have a call here on the line, so let's go to the phones. Good evening, you're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hey, how are you, Tim? Um, Just calling in. we got people in the Spirited Society uh, chat room who want to go live stream, is it running tonight? They're wondering. No, no I don't think it will be. Oh, it is not running. Yeah, oh, not, darn. That's all the. Uh, that's all we have to say about that tonight. Yeah. Okay, I'll let them know. But uh, you can keep everybody uh, up to date about what's going on oh, and yeah. how the discussion's going. Now, why don't yeah. you tell everybody, if they want to join in the discussion, uh, how they can do that. Okay, they go to www.spiritedsociety.net and... On the left-hand side, there's like a little cow skull, and there's a chat link right above that one. Hit that one. That's our new chat room. And that's where everybody listening to Spooky South Coast can meet up and, and talk about the show while they're listening. And, and uh, for those who are somewhere where you can't listen, which hopefully won't be for too much longer, you can go in there and, and find out some more about uh, what you're missing. And uh, then, you know, when the podcast comes out, then it all will make sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. So we apologize for this little uh, issue, but uh, there's something uh, technical on this end that's keeping us from being able to do it. worked great at my house earlier. Oh, darn. So, uh, Isn't we'll, that the way it goes? It is. We'll, we'll keep working on it. I suppose I probably should have asked permission. Well, make Maybe. sure you say hi to our friends from California. They're in the chat room with us. Oh, who, you got Carl in there? I've and... got Carl and Jennifer Oh. and a couple of the people from Spirited. We're having a great little time over there. Well, I wish we could and join. And I'll let them know. You guys are talking about my favorite places. <laughs> well, and, and don't forget, too, uh, this is a good time to throw in this plug here. Uh, Tuesday, November 21st, that's this coming Tuesday, 7.30 p.m., at the Freetown Historical Society on 1 Slabridge Road in a Sonnet, right? A Sonnet, not a Cushnet, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, right. We're going to be giving a discussion. Uh, Matt Moniz, Matt Costa, and myself will be joined by Christopher Balzano of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website and Christopher Pittman, who is the Bridgewater Triangle historian. We're going to be giving a presentation to the Freetown Historical Society about Haunted Freetown and some of the paranormal activity in Freetown, and uh, including in that, included in that will be some of these you know natural structures there and and some of the uh, stories surrounding them. And uh, I guess the event is open to the public, so it's free of charge. So make sure that you come out uh, Tuesday night at seven thirty, and refreshments will be served. And uh, we're gonna do a Q and A with people too, and share their paranormal stories and and anything else that you want to talk about. We can do that uh, after the presentation as well. Oh, that sounds like it's going to be fun. I and I have to say they put on a great presentation, so whoever can make it, 
Better get out there. And we we were winging that one. <laughs> we were making that one up as we went along. So wait wow. till you, wait till you see what we do when we had time to prepare. Wow, imagine that. Anybody anybody had time to prepare yet? No, me either. Okay. <laughs> we'll have something ready for you. Excellent. All right. Well, we hope to see you then. Okay, I'll be listening. Thank you. Night. Night. That, of course, is an Eagles angel who is running the, uh, at the spiritedsociety.net, running the live chat discussion group that's going on. You know, I'd love to go in there and, hear, and see what they're talking about, see what they're saying about us during the show. This is really, it's really starting to get, I'm, I'm excited about it because it's really starting to turn into an event for people on a Saturday night. We... It'd be nice if we had computers to hook up to, to yeah, see it. Well, well, we'll work on that. It, it, you know, it, it's, to, to, have the message board up there, and people can send us questions. That was a great format, but that's not going to, you know, that's not going to cut it when we get into more in-depth topics. I mean, uh, already we've had trouble in, in shows keeping up with that. So we definitely need you. If you have any questions or any comments at any time during the program, feel free to call in 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And of course, it all comes back to the paranormal on this show, one way or another, and. It's not lost on me that a lot of these stone sites do have a paranormal, uh, I don't want to say history, but like a, a, a reputation around them. There, there's definitely something there as well. Um, a good example is the Gunji Womp site, which has, before it was even called the Gunji Womp site, had a long history of ghost lights and spirit reported. Uh, Frank Speck, the anthropologist, did a lot of work with the Pequots and just story after story and that same basic area down there they've got emotional disturbances people walk near a particular artifact and it's now known as the uh, cliff of tears i believe and so there's something there Um, mystery hill is on an earthquake line now i'm a big fan of the tectonic stress theory by persinger which basically says that earthquake Pressure creates an electromagnetic, electromagnetic pulse, which is temporarily scrambling part of your brain. And when you come to, you've got these random synaptic firings that you're trying to make sense of in your hippocampus. And depending on your frame of reference, it's a religious visitation. It's a UFO abduction. It's just a deep sense of spirituality. It happens once at a location. It's a personal thing with you. It happens repeatedly. You get a site that has a quote-unquote reputation. Now, I've seen earthquake lights up at Mystery Hill, which is not something I tend to normally admit. Um, Pick the perfect show to come up with it. Yeah, I'm coming out of the closet on this one. We were up there on Mystery Hill uh, on Halloween, which we traditionally do to keep vandals off the site, pretending to be witches. And I don't know what it was to this day, but three or four white lights looked like somebody had fired a flare going down the hill just above the tree line, no sound, no noise, scared the heck out of me, and more importantly, the guy with me who had a weapon was even more scared, which scared me all the more. I'm not big on walking through the woods with armed, scared people. Call me a sissy. (laughs) I'm not big on walking through the woods in general, really. First of all, it's walking. Walking's hard. And... uh, (laughs) No, I mean seriously. I was. I think I might have told the story uh, last week on the show. But when when Matt Costa and myself, when we went to uh, the ledge out in the Freetown State Forest, uh, we looked at it and we're like, "Wow, that's a little daunting to try to get to the top of." But we buckled down. We climbed the side. We went through the little natural creek that runs down it, and you know we were tugging on roots and pulling on twigs, and we finally got up to the top of it and realized, "Oh, hey, there's a road. We could have just driven up there." Oops. And uh, it's. 
You have a photo of the ledge, do you? Yep. All right. We have some photos, too, that I took, but I can't get them on my computer because I couldn't upload them. But we'll get them up there. And if you have any pictures uh, that you have taken of any of these megalith sites and you want to share them, just email them to us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll make sure that Dave gets a copy of them as well, if you don't mind sharing. And uh, now, one of the things that is of real interest, especially around here in, in that Freetown State Forest area, are these caves, these natural caves that have formed. And a lot of them have been hidden. Uh, Matt, we were talking to somebody... Uh, and you know the story better than I because you were talking to him, but we were talking to somebody the other night who knows someone who actually discovered one of these caves. Uh, you're talking at the paper? Yes. Yes. Um, he related to me about a friend of his that was a researcher that was looking into caves and cave histories around the area, and uh, supposedly they said they did find a cave system in the Freetown Forest. I know there's also a, a set of caves in Middleborough that was – buried for a long time, and, and then, it, I guess, in somebody's backyard, they found one. And once they found one, that led to Dude, other ones others, being yeah. found. Do you, is it common for these caves to be around some of these other sites, or is it kind of just willy-nilly wherever they pop up? It's tough to get caves in New England as a rule of thumb because of the geology of the location. Yeah, I mean, it's not really very uh, conducive to it. But. I know down at, uh, in the Linwoods there's a cave, but it's actually a man-made one from a treasure hunter. Oh, wow. But I don't, so I don't think that one really counts. These, yeah, I guess these are you know, natural caves that uh, for years were buried. Uh, you, know, you were talking about, I remember you were talking about the actual uh, soil erosion and, and all that kind of stuff. And how would they have gotten so buried to begin with, though? It all depends upon where they are. Uh, if the cave's at a lower point in like a valley, it could very easily, the entrance could be sealed over. Is it caused by tectonic fissuring, or is it caused by water erosion? It all depends upon the types of caves. Uh, I really didn't get any detail on it from him, as you know, because we were kind of pressed for time. I was more interested in his story that he was relating about <laughs> encountering otherworldly spirits on his way home. He's a, he's a very interesting guy, and, and hopefully he'll call in sometime and share some of his experiences with our audience. Uh, but it, it just lends more credence to the the paranormal surroundings of that whole he was talking about uh, the Berkeley area specifically but just the whole you know the Bridgewater Triangle and, and we use that as a generic term I don't know if that pops up much in your research Dave of the idea of the Bridgewater Triangle as a paranormal area I, I'm not that familiar with it but I'll be honest South Coast is not my strong suit I know the Bennington Triangle up in Vermont area really what's the oh, is that Glast I guess they're calling it the Glastonbury Triangle now what's the reports out of that area pretty much if you name it it's been there they've got um, people disappearing they've got Bigfoot they've got uh, strange lights they've got strange scents they've got strange sounds um, I'm trying to think you pretty much just described what goes on in the Bridgewater Triangle yeah. as well. So, well, I think the only difference between them, aside from Vermont and Massachusetts, is um, there's a horror writer up in Vermont who's used the, that area in at least one of his stories. I'm trying to think of his name. Um, Citro, Joseph Citro. Joe Citro, yeah. Yeah. When we, he, when he, back when he was doing fiction. Yeah. Now he's into the nonfiction uh, stuff about Vermont. We're going to have him on to talk about uh, some of the hauntings up there and some of the paranormal stories up there. That's uh, on the recommendation of Chris Balzano who is definitely the, – the great thing about Chris is he devours both the fiction and the nonfiction in his role as – he's a he considers himself almost like a historian, a folklorist, 
Uh, he's not actually out to prove anything, although once in a while he does uh, he does do investigations. But he's out there trying to accumulate all these stories, and so he is kind of one of our go-to sources on this on these kind of phenomena. And he is also in the process of writing a book about the Freetown State Forest and some of the the ritualistic cult activity that's happened out there. Which, unfortunately, I'm sure some of these sites have drawn their fair share of that type of crowd over the years. Oh, yes. Uh, Harmonic Convergence, let's not forget, of a few years back. Uh, Mystery Hill decided they would allow people up there for the sunrise. And, of course, regular admission fee paid. I mean, we have insurances to pay. At about 3 o'clock in the morning, it suddenly dawned on us that there were two staff members. I was there and another researcher, and there were about 7,000 people in the parking lot. Wow. And at that point, we realized if they actually wanted to go up before the sunrise, there wasn't much we were going to do about it. But it was a lovely sunrise if you're into sitting on wet dirt and watching the sunrise with a bunch of strangers. Um by that point, we had been up for 72 hours. We were not particularly appreciative of anything. Sounds like you're throwing a little Jimi Hendrix. That was the early morning hours of Woodstock. Mm. But, I mean, I can understand why they would be drawn to these sites, especially these sites that have no known lineage where it's still unknown their origin, because then they can come in and try to lay claim to these. Uh, I know that these... Um, these tables that are found out there, the, the presses and the where they would make the, the soap with the lye stones, uh, some of these were erroneously referred to as altars in, in the past. Well, the first person I have personally found who ever called it an altar or a sacrificial table or was actually William Goodwin, who was identifying the site at the same time as being a monastery. And toward the end of his book, he sort of sneaks in a little disclaimer saying it was actually a grape press for the sacrificial wine used during the services of communion. Um, You can't put much credence in his book because of the way it was put out, but I've seen an awful lot of these sacrificial tables, and I'll call them that because I I really don't know what else to call them, grooved slabs, and there really are two different styles of them that you can see that are easily identifiable, and one of them is in Lemonster, which was actually out in the No-Town State Forest until somebody stole it and finally returned it. And now it's sitting on the front lawn of the Historical Society until they decide to move it, unless they've already moved it. Small towns, I love them. <laughs> and Mystery Hill. They're both ira- almost five-sided. I, won't, so f- I don't want to say five-sided because it suggests pentacle. Mm-hmm. It, but it's, it's pointed on one end. It has a very shallow groove. The stone itself is fairly irregular. Those two are very similar. The Lemonster one is most interesting because the surface inside of the groove is so irregular, you could not have put a barrel on it. So there's no way it was used for lye or making cider. There's more of them out around the Quabbin Reservoir, which has been a very odd location for stone chambers and huts. There's a very large table outside the Hadley Farm Museum in Hadley, Massachusetts. That's out around Amherst. And it's a very large, very square stone. It has a very deep groove on it. And there's another one down in the uh, Sturbridge area. And then there's one actually down in New York that was taken from Pelham, Massachusetts, before they flooded the Quabbin. And these are all very distinctively square. So I'm calling them Connecticut River Valley style. Um, If I had to put money on it, which I am very disinclined to do because I hate to commit to anything... Um, I'd say it's a good way to be. Yes. Know, well, read the book. It's <laughs> there's not a lot of declaration statement in there by me. 
Um, I think the ones out in Connecticut River Valley might be apple presses. It's simply the right time period. It's the right location, and that is a very active orcharding, yeah, orcharding area. Not sure the term. You know, but it's interesting that you say that you don't want to assign the the pentacle aspect to these stones. Uh, but you know, Matt, we've talked about this uh, off the air at times. Uh, the a pentacle shape doesn't necessarily mean satanic in any. It no. could just mean pagan. It, well, it was originally the, uh, the first design that people used in reference to themselves and God, because it's a representation of man. Five points, man. Yeah. You know, famous Da Vinci drawing. But um, it's not uh, uncommon to find something like that. You can find the same kind of designs. Or or five sided objects throughout every type of culture there there is around the world. So just saying is because it's five sided doesn't necessarily mean oh, no. it's demonic. I, I'm not trying to disclaim that part. It's just that I don't think it's symmetrical enough to be considered pentacle. It was probably just the shape of the rock, and they just yeah. went okay. with its. I, I just wanted to make sure because I mean. There's too much of the easy jump to the to the satanic and to the cult, yeah. and we try to alert people of the fact that there is history prior to, you know, the the Catholic and non-Catholic beliefs that we have now. Well, they, I think that's because you're thinking of sacrifices. Every religion does a sacrifice, including the Catholic religion. Of course, it's just whether or not they take a an animal or what, or what have you, right. and, you know, slice it open on a on a stone altar. Uh, the sacrifices are a little bit more neat and clean in some of the more modern churches. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> you don't have to actually go outside and hang anything from a tree and let it dry for a couple hours or whatever it is that they do. I don't know. So, But you, you did mention uh, the tone that you take in the books. And why don't you tell people how they can get the books uh, if they're interested? Well, if you think you can spell my last name, you can go right to Amazon.com and order them. They are they are available through order special order through Barnes & Noble or any of the major stores. The easiest way probably is to go to my website, ancientstonesites.com, and just click on the link that will take you to Amazon. We have links, too, on spookysouthcoast.com on our blog there. So Excellent. That's, we, try to, we try to make sure that we make it as easy as possible for the listeners so that they can get right there because, you know, we don't, it's not like uh, we're connected to the Internet here and can share that information. So. They took the words right out of my mouth. So, but that, uh, you know, and there is a lot of uh, misconception still to this day about just the history of, like we talked about earlier, uh, who came here when, who is responsible for what. And I think that maybe as time goes on, you know, we get further and further away from finding out the actual explanation instead of closer. I mean, I know when you're, as a researcher of these sites, it's not really something you want to hear, but it just seems like we're getting more and more disconnected as a society from these sites and what they mean. Oh, absolutely. Of course, you also have to play devil's advocate here, or at least I do. And we have to wonder if somebody was here or not, is that relevant compared to the impact they had long term? Uh, again, go back to the Vikings. Yes, they were here. End of discussion. What difference did it make? And that's where it gets complicated. Did they make any impact on the North American continent? Did they interact with the Indians? Did they introduce a disease? Did they introduce linguistics? If the answer is no, then it really doesn't matter whether they were here or not. Well, what, one of the things that I would find interesting is when you look at it, Vinland and what an important, significant 
cultural aspect it is to the Norse people. And if any part of New England is what they actually consider to be villain, then there's some sort of connection between what it was that they were doing and what it was that was here at the time. And, and I personally would like to know if that is the case and find out what it was that made it so intriguing and so, uh, I don't want to say, uh, just such an object of their affection. Well, look at the Statue of Liberty. Um, everybody knows where it is, everybody knows what it is, but how many people have actually gotten there? It, it becomes an iconic thing after a while. Mm-hmm. And personally, I'd love to know where uh, Vinland was, and I can show you a map of New England, and I can show you sites where it definitely was, depending on who you read, all the way from Newfoundland down to New York. So everybody's doing the exact same research, they're using the exact same data, and they're coming up with wildly different results. I mean, like you said, though, a lot of it doesn't really matter in the long run because it doesn't seem to be a predominant cultural effect. Not like if you go uh, out to, like, Minnesota, where there's definitely more of that influence uh, of Scandinavian countries. Uh, But, you know, how much would it have affected the way that the natives responded to the English settlers when they came? You know, would... And I'm just, I don't mean to go with the fourth grade version of American history here, but would Squanto and the Indians have been so helpful to the settlers when they came had they not already had prior? Well, Squanto did speak English. (laughs) That does raise some questions. Well, but the the Norse people that came certainly didn't speak English, so there would have had to have been English settlers prior. I'm trying to think who the earliest one they're giving credit to currently is. Is it Gosnold? I think that, yeah. It's, it's been a while since I did that part of the book. I'm sort of drawing a blank on names. But a lot of, you know, and a lot of researchers have actually gotten into boats and tried to recreate these Viking uh, pathways. And it just, like you said, everybody seems to end up with a different destination point. Uh, but I think overall the actual impact of the Norse that came here won't be understood unless we know for sure if they were the first ones here. Because then we can start to put two and two together in, in some of these respects. Well, uh, I'm trying to think who the, the explorer was who uh, spent one of the winters snowbound up in Maine. And his journal is a very careful record of the decimation of the local Indians from the diseases they had brought with them. And that affected definitely the way the pilgrims were greeted because if you've lost 70% of your culture... Um, and that is one of the theories at Mystery Hill, that the Indians had settled down into an agrarian culture and then were kicked backwards to hunter-gatherer by the time anyone was recording the records because of early disease. So that's when you start getting into the, oh boy, now I'm going to have a headache all night stuff. Yeah, we, we the, the white man was kind of jerks to, to the natives. And that's something that we will talk about next week as we get closer to the, the Thanksgiving holiday. Well, actually, we'll be in the Thanksgiving weekend next week. So we want to try to address some of those issues next week. Well, one of the theories I have why you don't have that much evidence of the Norse being down here. The Norse were very frugal in a sense, as you know, they didn't really leave things behind, unlike your other European no, they, settlers they, that would leave their trash everywhere. They and took still, things. That's they were coming they, here to take things, right. not to leave things behind. <laughs> well, it also depends on what the stuff they would have left behind was made of. If you're leaving behind wood instruments, ain't going to be there long, not in no. New England. Um, brass, copper. Yeah, but that stuff was very precious to them, and they would have policed that material up as best as possible and collected whatever else they could find indigenous in the area to take that with them. Absolutely. Skeleton in armor, Fall River. Um, Indian burial with a old kettle cut into breastplate and decorative material. Yeah. 
Waste not, what not, even before we were Yankees. Exactly. Well, we'll get into all of that and more in the second hour here on Spooky South Coast when we talk about more about ancient stone sites of New England with David Goutsward. Goutsward. And, you know, we had, a, we had a filmmaker in here once from Dartmouth, and I butchered his name for about an hour and 45 minutes before he finally corrected me. So just <laughs> jump in if I make a mistake. But we will talk about more about that. Uh, we'll also talk to you some more about, well, we'll have the return of the Week in Weird. Last week we didn't have the Week in Weird segment because we had Matt Moniz out in the field with uh, John Horrigan and the writer from the Weekly Dig. We'll talk about that in the second hour as well. We'll find out. We'll get a follow-up from Matt if he found anything out because I know people are, are dying to know. We'll, we'll let you know what he found, if anything, out there. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about... Uh, I want to talk a little bit, if we have a few moments, about the Irish elemental that Taps encountered on this week's episode of Ghost Hunters and pick Matt's brain a little bit about the elementals. And we'll also talk a little bit more about some of the paranormal aspects of some of these cases as well. And so if you would like to give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And like I said, you can talk about anything to do with the paranormal. It doesn't just have to be about tonight's topic, but certainly we welcome any questions on that as well. And we will be back with, and we're going to have a special guest in the second hour. Thank you for reminding me, Matt Moniz. We'll be joined by Charlie Devine, who is one of Matt Moniz's colleagues and has a lot of experience researching some of these sites. We'll have uh, him on the phone to talk with us, and uh, we'll also have your calls as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the CBS News with more Spooky South Coast. I'm knitting myself a hat And I'm sewing up a head to wear it on I'm making myself some mittens And I'm stitching my fingers together to keep them warm inside I'm knitting myself a sweater to cover the body I'm wearing. Knitting! 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 Spooky South Coast is back. I see you shiver with anticipation. Well, we're waiting. Welcome back into Spooky South Coast, hour number two, starting off without a hitch. Matt Costa, the silent assassin, staying silent over there tonight. 
How are you tonight? Silent. Silent. You know, he actually, we, we taped an episode of Penny Dreadful Shilling Shockers uh, recently that will air in, uh, I think, season four, right? Because they're, they're airing season three now? Or are they, yeah, they're, they're airing season three right now. So, and of course, that's here in New Bedford and most other areas. And in Wareham, where they just came on recently, uh, they are still airing season one. So you can catch up uh, on all the episodes that you've missed. This, of course, is on your local community uh, cable channel. If you don't have... Penny Dreadful Shilling Shockers on your local cable station and you're listening to Spooky South Coast, hey, shoot me an email, tim at spookysouthcoast.com. We'll find a way to make sure that you can sponsor their show in your local cable system so that you can watch it each week. But we were in there taping an episode in their in their studio, and uh, Matt Cost of the Silent Assassin both talks and lives up to his nickname, so you want to make sure you catch that episode. Hmm. You know, what did you think of your television debut, Matt? It was exciting. It was a lot of fun, actually. The lights in your face yes. and everything is a lot different than I don't radio. usually like lights in my face. But. Well, Rebecca did everything she could to make sure the light wasn't in your face. True. But now, do you, do you think maybe you're going to ditch us here at the radio station and go become a big I can never believe you guys. You can't? You're, you're like a... Well, you've seen what happens when we try to do anything technical. That's true. You were here at the beginning of the show. Just adds to the story. I know you probably don't want... Story. It's another story we can tell. It is. And we can't blame that on the demons in the studio this time yeah. because we had Keith Johnson bless the studio. So that is not to be blamed on the demons. Definitely human error. So, <laughs> now, and I said that I wanted to talk about the Irish Elemental uh, that was on TAPS this week, Matt. And, and I think as much as TAPS does a good job explaining to people what it is that they're doing, I don't think they gave a, a proper definition. Maybe they did, and it was just edited out to make it sound less, to make it sound more spooky. But why don't you tell people who might not be sure exactly what an elemental is? All right, uh, an elemental is a spirit or life force, whatever you choose to call it, that is eons old predates man never really walked this planet is more a um best way you can describe it is is as it sounds it's an elemental spirit it is part of something that is what makes up this planet it's a little abstract i think for a lot of uh modern day paranormal investigators to put their finger on because it doesn't fit they generally lump it into the demon category even though a, a true elemental really isn't now, not to say what uh, Dustin encountered was a true elemental, but uh, that was just the moniker, I think, that was labeled on this particular spirit. I think that uh, from what I've read anyway, I've never in- encountered one, but from, from what I've read, an elemental is not uh, – it doesn't have an agenda as a, as a demonic entity would. It kind of just is. Correct. And it does what it does, and if you get in its way, then so be it. But Very much like a regular wild animal would be. It, a skunk can either look at you or walk away from you or spray you. It all depends upon what its mood is. And there is an intelligence, though, to elementals? Yes. And have you ever encountered one? Personally, no. Because it, it definitely seems to me like uh, of all the uh, paranormal that you can encounter, elementals seem to me to be... I don't know. A little bit out of the range of what we can handle. I, that's why I was I was uh, I was kind of shocked that they were so cavalier about investigating this and, and getting right up in its face. Because out of what we think we understand about the paranormal, I think the elementals would be the thing we're the least closest to understanding. Because to believe in it essentially just throws the whole world into a tizzy. 
Yeah. I, I do know how Dustin feels being tossed, though. That, it's not a pleasant experience. You know, and, and I was saying to you this morning when we were talking about it, if we hadn't talked to Dustin last week and if I hadn't had the benefit of DVR, I would have thought that what flew up and knocked him out, I would have thought it was a bat. Because when you watched it fast paced on the Sci-Fi Channel, it seemed like they were just getting hit by a hit by a bat because you can actually almost see that bat fly by. But I was messing around with my DVR, and when Dustin first gets hit, and he's like, "Whoa!" That's when the bat actually comes up, like shocked by the noise, and right. flaps in front of the. Ca- so without that benefit, I would have dismissed that. So it just shows you, you know, how you have to have a really critical eye when you're reviewing this footage. And I, I thought it was great that Steve was able to get involved, even though he couldn't couldn't actually fly to be part of it. Right, I agree. Hopefully, uh, I mean, I'm glad that Dustin was all right and that he wasn't yes. hurt. He was lucky to have people around when when I had what happened to me. I was alone in trespassing, and uh, yeah, it's not a pleasant experience. Well, then the ghost will just tell you you got what you deserved. Well, well obey the my, signs. My it was my own fault. I was chasing him down. And of course, we here at Spooky South Coast and always recommend they do chase back. We always recommend that you don't trespass when uh, investigating the paranormal. Because you're probably going to end up in enough trouble already without having the law after you as well. So that's our little summation of the Irish Elemental episode. And and uh, next week will be more interesting, uh, just as interesting w- with more investigation uh, out in Ireland. So stay tuned for that. Also, Celebrity Paranormal Project, I have to say. Uh, I- I'm having a little bit more respect for it uh, in terms of what it is that they're trying to do. Uh, I still don't think that it has any overall value to the paranormal community, but Gilbert Gottfried was a nice touch, i got to say. Gilbert Gottfried investigating the paranormal. you got to see it to believe it. I'm telling you, Dave. Okay, I'll take your word for that one. <laughs> All I could think of the whole time I was watching it was his uh, his brief cameo on Married with Children that time, stuck in the raft, and he, he had the giant serving platters on Mickey Mouse on acid. Oh, that's all I kept thinking of, so... But anyway, that's beside the point. We are getting off track. Let me remind you one more time uh, that on Tuesday, November 21st at 7.30 p.m. at 1 Slab Ridge Road in Asonet, we will be presenting for the Freetown Historical Society a presentation on haunted Freetown, the paranormal activity in Freetown, and especially the Freetown State Forest. It will be Matt Moniz, Matt Costa, and myself. We'll be joined by Christopher Balzano and Christopher Pittman. And we will be talking, you know, we're going to have two Matts, two Chris's, and a Tim. So we'll see if we can get another Tim to come on and just be with us. Uh, to Want me to bring my roommate? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense. Because I, I kind of like being the only Tim. I was just being facetious. I don't know how you guys deal with when I say Matt. You don't both just go, yeah, yeah what? Uh, but I actually am very uh, – I get very upset when there's another Tim in the room because I don't pay attention when people are talking to me anyway. That's beside the point. So uh, we will be there uh, Tuesday night at 7.30. It should be a great presentation. Uh, I'm saying that because I know that Chris and Chris definitely know their stuff, and they'll have tons of uh, information to share with you, not only about Freetown and about the Freetown State Forest, but also about the Bridgewater Triangle in general. And, of course, uh, I think the way that we have it kind of planned out is, you know, we're going to have Matt Moniz focus on the haunting aspects. Uh, Matt Costa, who is our cryptozoologist on staff here, he's going to focus on some of the strange creatures that have been reported in that area. Uh, and then I know Chris uh, Balzano is going to talk about the cult activity in the State Forest, which is the subject of his new book. Hopefully Chris Pittman will share with us some UFO activity, which is one of the earliest reported sightings there, going back to the 1600s. And also... 
Uh, I'm going to try and surmise it all with why it could be with a lot of help from Matt Moniz. And uh, hopefully uh, we can also have a multimedia presentation for you with some pictures and uh, who knows what else. Maybe some clips from Aaron's film. Uh, it should be a good time. It starts at 7.30 on Tuesday night at the Freetown Historical Society. Uh, keep checking your local newspapers, too, because we're going to try to get some some more word out that way as well. And, of course, we'll have all the information up on SpookySouthCoast.com. And while we're plugging our website, we'd like to plug another website for you, PlanetParanormal.com. Spooky South Coast has entered into an agreement with Planet Paranormal to uh, join their stable of programs, which are outstanding. They've got all the big names in the paranormal field, Taps Power Radio, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which let's say congratulations right now to Dave Schrader on the birth of his new daughter, Ripley. Congrats, Dave. Yes, just born, uh, I think, today. I'm not sure. I didn't check the actual date, uh, but congratulations, Dave. That's number six for the Dave. Wow. Yeah. Number six, so good luck, guy. <laughs> and uh, also they have uh, Night Watch, Todd Sheets program, another excellent program. And they also carry uh, Spooky South Coast now. And there's a bunch of other shows that you might not have heard of that are more specific to certain communities and certain, uh, I don't want to say angles, but certain subject matter in the paranormal. There's a show about the vampire lifestyle, a show about living as a witch, uh, just some different talk. Chris Fleming's uh, program is on there. He just started his own radio program, you know, the, the host of uh, Dead Famous. So there's definitely a lot of programming on there to check out, you know, to put on your MP3 player uh, when you're driving around and when you're outside of the range of WBSM. So, Which means outside of the parking lot. Hey, well, that's, uh, you can't say that on the air. Oh, man. That was Matt Moniz, science advisor, not an employee of the station. So None of us are. So, But that uh, is the new website that we want to let you be aware of, and you can find our podcast there. Uh, you'll find our uh, – there's a 24-hour live stream of uh, archive programs. You can find us on there soon enough and also uh, in the live studios – Keep tuned to Studio A. That's all I'm going to say about that. So, With that out of the way, it's time to do a little something we like to call The Week in Weird. And starting off The Week in Weird this week, well, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit hungry. You know what I could go for right now? Some fried chicken. And I'm going to go for some KFC fried chicken. I'm not sure if they're a sponsor here on WBSM, but... We're going to talk about this anyway because this is an outstanding uh, achievement of what they've created. And I'm not just talking about that chicken. It is good, but we're going to talk about how KFC created the world's first brand visible from space. As Colonel Sanders takes one small step for humankind, but one giant leap for fried chicken. The KFC Corporation announced this week that they became the world's first brand visible from outer space by unveiling a record-breaking 87,500 square foot updated Colonel Sanders logo in the Area 51 desert. So that's a, that's appropriate to put it out there in Area 51. The event marks the official debut of a massive global re-image campaign that will contemporize the KFC restaurants. Uh, their fresh new look updates one of the most recognized, respected, and beloved brand icons in the world. Of course, can you tell I'm reading from the KFC press release? Uh, plenty of adjectives in this one. Anyway, they have the new Colonel Sanders logo that they're trying to push uh, for the new millennium. They built it off the world's only extraterrestrial highway in Rachel, Nevada, also known as the UFO capital of the world and the epicenter of intergalactic communication. So by building this giant, uh, you know, this huge, huge uh, puzzle, it's a, it's a giant jigsaw puzzle, 65,000 one foot by one foot 
painted tile pieces, uh, 6,000 red, 14,000 white, 12,000 eggshell, 5,000 beige, and 28,000 20,000 black. It took 24 days working around the clock to manufacture and ultimately produce, and then it took six days on the site to construct the logo, and what they were hiding it, you know, trying to keep it hidden as they were putting it together so that airplanes passing over wouldn't know what it was. But now it's out there, and now it's a giant Colonel Sanders logo, which means we are now the only drive-thru in the galaxy where you can get fried chicken if you're flying in a UFO. So... There you go. And I'm not. most of these KFCs now have the Taco Bell franchise tied in. So, you know, extraterrestrials out there listening, if you want a taco too, come on down. All right, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? I've got something for us a little closer to home. Uh, it's about ghosts in Attleboro. Okay. Attleboro Park Superintendent Sonny Almeida has been a city employee for 48 years. So, as the old saying goes, he's been around long enough to know where all the bodies are buried. But Almeida also knows where there's a ghost or two. Well, he's a, as sure as one can be about such supernatural perceptions. Whose ghost it is, he's not certain, but apparently it wanders the old casino building, which is a also a former art museum on the edge of Carpton Park, where Almeida has his office. Ghost wanderings take place at night and on weekends. Almeida knows it's there because things have gotten to be moved, he said. To test the theory, Almeida once placed a rug in a certain spot in front of a fireplace before leaving for the weekend. On Monday morning, the rug was several feet away from where he left it. There's a rocking chair in his office that tends to migrate overnight, as if someone or something, while he's away in the cold and quiet of the midnight hours is rocking back and forth and back and forth. Sometimes I wonder who it is, said Almeida. Is it a poltergeist? Seems to be friendly, or at least harmless. Almeida said the ghost doesn't make him nervous, although he has acknowledged that the relocating rug was a bit unsettling. And that, of course, comes from George W. Rhodes of the Attleboro Sun Chronicle, which is uh, the newspaper of record out there. So you're starting to see uh, it's, it's getting interesting because, what is this, mid-November? Yeah. And they're running a paranormal story in the newspaper. It's not confined now to just the Halloween time. Right. You know, let's throw a few spooky stories in the paper. The paranormal is now becoming regular mainstream news, which is part of what we're hoping to do here with Spooky South Coast. And uh, speaking of mainstream or non-mainstream news, silent assassin Matt Costa, oh, now, right. y- now you must speak. Rat. Man bites panda after zoo attack. A drunken Chinese tourist says he bit a panda who attacked him after he jumped into a zoo enclosure to, quote, hug the bear. Zhang Xian had four draft beers before deciding to enter the pen at Beijing Zoo, belonging to six-year-old male panda, Gugu. The startled Gugu bit the legs of the intruder who responded by biting the panda on its back. Mr. Zhang said he had a sudden urge to touch Gugu with his hands, and he had not realized pandas could be violent, so he jumped over the waist-high railing into the enclosure. When he got closer and was undiscovered, he reached out to hug it, and that's when the panda bit him. Though the panda was not hurt, the man is still being hospitalized, and charges will not be filed yet. Against the panda? Against the guy, I guess, I think. 
They could technically file charges against the panda, too, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they should take that panda and give it to KFC. Whoa. For... For... For use K- in Kentucky their... Kentucky Fried Panda. For use in their product? Finger Ling Ling Good. <laughs> oh, man. It's good. It's good when the rest of the spooky crew starts making the lame jokes surrounding the week and weird. I know I've taught them well. Uh, okay, so that's the week and weird. Remember, if you have a story you'd like to share with us for the week and weird, just go to the message board on spookysouthcoast.com, click on the week and weird thread, and you can submit it there. And if we use the story, we will give you credit for passing it on to us. So there you have it. There's the week and weird. Stay tuned. We'll be right back here with more spooky South Coast. Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services including Reiki, Kuan Yin, Magnified Healing, and Meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations knowledgeable staff has over 40 years experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. If you smell what the rock is cooking. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. We're here. And joining us on the line will be Charlie Devine. I met Charlie about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, he was into researching rocks and meteorites, and uh, he is very knowledgeable about one particular uh, stone site that he found in uh, off the Narragansett area. Uh, I, I think Charlie would best be able to describe wh- what he found himself. Charlie, you there? Yeah, hi, Matt. How you doing? All right, Charlie. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to be here. What's up? Well, we'd like to have you talk with Dave here a little bit about the rock that you found. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, that would have been uh, in 1985, and at the time, I was research director for the Rhode Island chapter of NERA, which is the New England Antiquities Research Association, which is long been involved in looking at the question of whether there were pre-Columbian voyages to America, the Vikings, and in some cases far earlier than the Vikings. And we had gotten a lot of leads over the years. Our team was very active, and we had gotten a lot of leads on petroglyph sites and inscription sites, and most of them turned out to be mistaken identity. A lot of glacial scratches, for instance. It's amazing how many times people can be fooled by... Uh, by something like that. And we, so we didn't take it up right away. It had been found by a cohogger. 
and he had made a sketch and given it to a friend of mine, John Woodson, who was one of my associates in NARA. And in April of 1985, we finally got around to ta uh, taking a look at it, and uh, we're delighted by what we saw because it, it really did look like a, a strong possibility to be a runic inscription. And it's uh, since become known as the Narragansett Bay Runestone. Uh, and I would say that the most interesting feature, I thought, was the presence of one character in particular, which was also present on the Kensington Runestone, as well as uh, from Kensington, Minnesota, as well as the Spirit Pond Runestones, which were discovered uh, on Spirit Pond in Maine in 1971. And uh, that particular character had been used, in the, in the case of the Kensington Runestone, it had been used to cast doubts upon that stone's authenticity, because supposedly the character uh, had not come into use yet at the time the stone, the Kensington Stone has an actual data out of 1362 A.D., and it recounts a voyage uh, down the St. Lawrence, or up the St. Lawrence, into the into the Great Lakes, and it records a, a massacre uh, of part of their party. And uh, It's dated at 1362, but supposedly this particular character hadn't come into use yet in the runic inscription, so it was used to cast doubt on the authenticity of the stone. And interestingly enough, that character appears on both the Narragansett Bay runestone and the uh, Spirit Pond runestone. And actually, I think it shows up in another one that you may not be familiar with. And what's that, Dave? That's the West Tisbury runestone. Which yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, no. That, that's one Holland uh, identified back in the 1950s. Um, it's in my book, for all the good that'll do you right now, but uh, it's a, an oddball piece. Uh, it was found by a gentleman, retired engineer. His, uh, I guess he had a hired hand helping him. Okay. And he had found this in the woods. They copied it down in the 1930s and didn't give it another second thought until the 1950s when Holland had had a book just come out. Uh-huh. And it's basically five runes that spell out the word Tholith. And they have never actually seen the rock. All we have is that original inscription done by the farmhand. Oh, so the rock's never been actually recovered itself? Nope, and the funny part is Priester himself may have d taken it. He was a, a retired engineer, as I said, but he also was a um, trying to restore a mill pond on his property. So he picked up all the small loose stones on the property and rebuilt the bed of the stream. So he may have actually destroyed it himself before he could find it. Oh, wow. Holland spent a couple of summers looking for it, and I, I believe Frederick Pohl was there for a couple of seasons looking for it. Wow. And they never did find it. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, how did you get involved with the research in, into these sites? Well, I've long had an interest in alternate views of history. Uh, I was a history professor at the University of Rhode Island in the 70s, and uh, I just didn't buy into the history I had been taught, which made it very difficult for me to be a teacher of history at that time. Um, in fact, there was a, a book that came out at the time called At the Edge of History, which pretty much introduced me, I can't think of the author now, but it pretty much introduced me to the notion that there had been earlier civilizations than, that uh, we were aware of. And, uh, you know, from there it just became an interest in, in megalithic civilization in general, uh, right now, uh, interestingly enough, American archaeology, prehistoric archaeology, is, is undergoing a sea change in revolution. Uh, just a few years ago, 
it was dogma that there was no human beings in the Western Hemisphere prior to Clovis Man about 12,500 years ago, who supposedly came over the Bering Strait when that was dry land uh, in an interglacial period. And now that has been completely thrown out the window, and they're actually looking at the possibility that uh, Clovis is named after the, uh, a particular type of projectile point called a Clovis point, beautifully made, and uh, found throughout the Americas beginning about 12,500 years ago and lasting to about 11,500 years ago when the point styles changed. But now they're really beginning to give serious thought to the possibility that Clovis people arrived across the Atlantic from Europe specifically from Spain and France, the Sultrian people. So uh, you can go back as far as our, our furthest prehistory, and you'll see that even mainstream archaeology now is undergoing a sea change where the Americas are concerned. And yet just a few years ago, less than 10 years ago, if you were an academic and you didn't have tenure and you suggested that there were people here earlier than 12,500 years ago, your career was very much in jeopardy. And... Uh, so you can you can start with that far back, and then you can even go further and and discuss the possibility that there may have been civilizations far earlier, advanced civilizations far earlier that we simply have no memory of, and uh, that just fascinates me. And so I've pretty much been into it my entire life. Oh, absolutely! And if there was uh, civilizations here uh, on this continent, uh, you know, as far back as anyone can imagine. Where were they centered out of? I mean, was it as widespread as as we as we've come to be over the last couple of hundred years, or was it? Uh, did it seem to emanate from one particular area of the continent? Well, if you're not if you're not talking about advanced civilization, if you're just talking about prehistoric peoples, mm-hmm. Stone Age hunters. It looks now like the Clovis people themselves first appear in the American Southeast. That's where the heaviest concentration of of Clovis projectile point, points are found. They were first recovered in New Mexico. In fact, they're named after the town of Clovis, New Mexico, where they were first found in association with extinct bison remains. Uh, and, and that's one reason why they're looking at a transatlantic crossing, because Clovis seems to appear first in the eastern United States. But they're finding far older sites. Now, there's a site in Meadowcroft, a rock shelter in Meadowcroft, Pennsylvania, that has consistently, for, for years, given dates in excess of 15,000 years. And it's it's been excavated for, I think, close to 30 years now by an archaeologist at the University of Pennsylvania by the name of Aphidicio. And uh, he's been pretty much anathema to American archaeologists. But, again, there's been a sea change, and there's, there's more of an acceptance of his work. There's also places uh, such as Monte Verde in Chile, which consistently uh, gives dates in excess of 14,000, 15,000 years. These are all pre-Clovis. But I think when all is said and done, you're going to see people in the Americas probably at least 30,000 and perhaps as much as 50,000 years ago. So, uh, you know, we've, there's been people here for a long time. As far as civilizations, well, then, uh, you know, advanced cultures, uh, that's a little harder to pin down, but, of course, there's always the stories of Atlantis and, and earlier civilizations like that, that that seem to be memories of actual civilizations and not just myths, I believe, in any, in any event. You're referring to, like, Lemuria and Mu and places of that ilk? Yeah, places of that ilk. Well, you've got things like the Perry Reese map, which is a, which shows Antarctica. At the, the Perry Reese map dates from 1513, 
and it shows the Antarctic continent of Antarctica as it would appear without ice. Now, the only time that we've known what it looks like without ice is the development of sonar, so it can see through the ice. Uh, and yet the Perry Reef map shows it as it would appear without ice, and the last time it was without ice was in excess of 15,000 years ago. Furthermore, the Perry Reef map seems to be based on an aerial map. So it does seem to suggest that there may have been civilizations in the past that were advanced technologically. And, you know, we have these little bits and pieces of physical evidence and memory evidence in the form of myths that have come down through time that suggest that. You know, you have the Indian legends, the subcontinent of India, that is, uh, of great wars taking place in the past that, that seem to describe nuclear conflagrations, not just normal wars, but actual nuclear exchanges. Well, I think we have a call on the line for you, Charlie. Oh, okay. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Hey, I'm sorry. Um, I... Just turned on the radio. I don't know what you're talking about. I was wondering if you guys could talk to me about the meteor shower tonight. In which direction to look to in the sky? Uh, I can. I just got off. Uh, I just got off talking with somebody. And if if you're in southern New England, we don't seem to be in in luck right now. It's it's oh. totally overcast. And you look in the direction of east, and the constellation Leo, which will be rising above the eastern horizons a little after midnight, but unfortunately they're calling for totally cloudy skies. Overcast? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, uh, that, that is a shame, though, that we won't be able to see that. I just got a telescope recently, and I was looking forward to it. Well, I find it ironic because one of uh, Charlie's other hobbies is collecting meteorites. You know, it's ironic the two hobbies came together today. <laughs> uh, they're just finishing... Um, a month-long excavation, archaeological excavation of the Newport Tower in Newport, and that, with a view towards trying to finally answer the question, when was the darn thing built? And, uh, Dave, I'm sure you're aware that the, the Norse have long been associated with the Newport Tower, and the people doing this is the Chrononostic uh, Research Foundation out of Phoenix, Arizona. They found no smoking guns. This is the first time in 60 years that the town council of Newport has allowed an archaeological investigation of the tower. They found no smoking guns, but the reason I went down and visited them today is because they claim to have found a meteorite. And, and if so, it would be the first one found from the state of Rhode Island. And they found it in a, in a layer, a subsurface layer that they estimated to be two to 3,000 years old. So they weren't looking for anything in that layer. And what happened was they had a student archaeologist who wasn't aware that he didn't have to bother with the dirt from that layer. But instead he ran a magnet through that dirt just for the heck of it, and up pops this rock. And so they posted a picture of it online, and it sure does look like a meteorite. I'm going to get to see it on, on Monday. I've collected meteorites for about 20, 25 years now. So I'm going to be able to identify it one way or the other for them. And the reason I wanted to get in touch with them is because there's a particular set of uh, circumstances that you have to follow when you find a meteorite if you want it to be officially recognized. And I figured, and I was correct, that most archaeologists aren't going to know what those rules and regulations are. So I wanted to make sure that if this were a meteorite, I knew it would be the first one ever recovered from the state of Rhode Island. And I wanted to see it done correctly. So I went down there today. Unfortunately, I didn't have it with them. But uh, I'll be getting to see it uh, Monday, and it, it's it's interesting because it did bring both my hobbies together: archaeology, 
uh, the possibility that Newport Tower was built by the Vikings and a meteorite to boot. <laughs> now, I've been up here doing talks all week, so I have been following the excavation. Is this possibly one of the reasons they were getting some anomalies on the ground-penetrating radar? They talked to me about, yes, exactly. Um, it, it, it appears that the, the anomalies they were getting were actually parts of gravel paths that had been built there in the late 1800s. So the original walkways. Yeah, exactly. So this meteorite could have actually come from another area and been part of what is fill. Uh, they don't think so. No, it was in an undisturbed layer. I don't know exactly how far down. It was in an undisturbed layer that they estimated to be two to three thousand years old. So it was well below anything, you know, any disturbance in the last three hundred years. At okay. least that's what they they were telling me. Well, so, if it, this is a meteorite impact, wouldn't there be uh, the stratigraphy of it be different? Wouldn't it show like evidence of um, uh, a basic impact? This is a tiny stone. This is uh, no bigger than a walnut. Something no bigger than a walnut, if I'm not correct, should make a hole about five, six feet deep. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, most of the time when, when uh, meteorites come down in showers, for the most part, they explode high up in the atmosphere. They'll come in as a single object, but it'll explode and end up coming down as a shower. And they actually, by the time they're through, they could hit you in the head and not hurt you. By the time they make their final plop to the ground... Well, that's just because my head's that thick. <laughs> well, not you in particular. <laughs> well, they'd, they'd have less luck penetrating that dome, so he's right. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, it's interesting. It, it was exciting that they were that the town city council because they they did some dating of mortar. A Scandinavian team dated the mortar in the Newport Tower. I'm going to say it's about seven, eight years ago now. And at first it looked really encouraging because they were getting a date in the 1500s, and one of the theories for the tower had been that it was an Elizabethan outpost. Maybe Sir William Drake or somebody like that had actually been stationed here, so to speak. And uh, Sir Francis Drake, I mean. Um, or Walter Raleigh, one of those guys. But the Elizabethan era, and uh, that was pretty exciting at the time. But then they refined their dates, and this is a new type of dating method that allowed them to date mortar. And uh, this team from, I forget which of the Scandinavian nations, was going to examine, I think, the top six potential Viking sites in America. And the first one they chose was the Newport Tower. But eventually they refined their dates, and they felt that um, it, had, it could not predate 1635, so that was a great disappointment to the romantics among us who were hoping the tower was older than that. But the jury is really still out, because there's been some questions in recent years about uh, contamination, about exactly what part of the tower they took their mortar from, uh, about whether the tower had undergone some repair using mortar in the 1600s, and I know for a fact, just talk, I won't put words in their mouth because I just met them today and I don't know them that well, but the archaeological team that's, that's working there in the past month, they definitely have the opinion that this was not built as a windmill by Governor Benedict Arnold in the 1600s. Well, there's no question. Architecturally, it just doesn't work. Yeah, no, I, it, no, it doesn't work at all. I mean, it's, a, it's in a beautiful location for a windmill. It's virtually the highest point of land in Newport and it faces the prevailing winds, but Structurally, and I mean, uh, you know, it probably took a couple of years to build the darn thing, and they could have built a wooden one in a couple of months. 
So it really doesn't make much sense as a windmill. But it does make sense as a battlement. It, it makes sense as a lot of things. That there some of the, there, there's astronomical alignments there uh, through the windows and the little niches in the tower. Uh, at certain times of the year, you know, the, the moon will rise and shine right through one of the windows, and uh, it it it's a good observ it's a good location for the, for an observatory. Uh, it's just as good a location for the, for an observatory as it is for a windmill, mm. and structurally so, more feasible as one. Right, I think so. Yeah. Well, the part that always bothered me about the windmill is you have a fireplace on the second floor. And yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of rocket science to know that grinding things creates dust, and yeah. fireplace is a bad combination. Well, yeah, it, it's a very bad combination, and, it, and it's right out in the open there. I mean, yeah, it, it, there's a lot wrong with the windmill theory from the point of view of common sense. I agree with you. Well, there were many reports of windmills exploding because of the, the powder is very flammable. Most people don't realize that. Uh-huh. You weren't supposed to keep any flames going. That's why mills only work during the day. Right. Well, the other thing, and I think it's Philip Means in his book on the Newport Tower, points out that the flue of the chimney, the way it's positioned, it comes out almost f- in such a way that it's going to set fire to the cap with the windmill part on it. I see. Uh, it just doesn't have the extension. So the cinders are going to come out of the building immediately, and they're going to strike the roofing components yeah so it, it, it's just a bad design if it's a windmill yeah yeah i give i give the newport i give the, the present council a lot of credit for for at least you know because for, for decades not you know it was just ignored uh you know in the generations that have passed since philip means time well the uh, last last excavation was godfrey if i remember correctly that's a long time ago very long time ago right so the, this same team did uh, some Use some ground penetrating radar in 2003, and it was those anomalies is where they dug. They just didn't. Uh, unfortunately, there was no smoking gun. You know, they were, or as he put it today, you know, a Viking sword would have been nice. <laughs> it would have been but very was, nice. Yeah, it was nothing quite like that. But there's been a. Uh, uh, I mean, if if you look carefully, you see, you'll see that there's tons. Of, of Viking relics found in northern Canada, in eastern and northern Canada, found among the tribes there. Uh, there, there was a strong Norse presence in North America, I believe. It just wasn't uh, the kind of t- type of impact that leaves a lasting impression. It wasn't a, a massive invasion. It was, you know, basically a, a small population, but it was still extensive enough to, uh, so that a lot most of the tribes. In in northern and eastern Canada, have traditions of dealing with these people, and it's, it's a little-known part of, of, our, of North American history. And, and we know that there was a settlement in Lancey Meadows on the northern tip of, of Newfoundland, and on a clear day, they only had to look west, and there's the entirety of the North American continent stretching out in front of them. Uh, and it's impossible place? to believe that explorers that intrepid are just going to say, well, forget about that, this is a good enough spot. No, they're going to explore. They're going to want to know, you know, more. I mean, you find rune stones in, in Oklahoma, and people say, well, how the heck did the Vikings get there? Well, they could get there up the Mississippi River and then up the Red River, and there they are in Oklahoma. 
Well, if you follow the coast down from Lancy Meadows, you pass by Yarmouth, which is the Yarmouth runestone. You cross the Bay of Fundy, you land basically at Popham Beach, which is a runestone, and a little further inland from there is Spirit Pond, and then you just continue down the coast and you're in Ground Central. So like breadcrumbs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, I don't think they get to Lancy Meadows and don't at least get as far as southern New England after that. I think it's... (laughs) It's a no-brainer that they probably did. We just need, you know, uh, mainstream archaeology, and you can't blame them. Extraordinary claims demand extraordinary proof, and uh, and you want a, a lot more evidence. But it, we're not dealing with a massive invasion, so the evidence isn't going to necessarily be that obvious. But there's certainly enough rune stones. There's enough mooring holes uh, where they would have you know, moored their boats and. Well, there's another thing that makes sense, Charlie. If they're coming down from that area, the the flow of the currents from up in that area brings them right into this area. Uh, Yeah, I'm not that familiar with how the currents work, but... uh, Uh, I am. I dove all around here, trust me. (laughs) Okay, I'll take your word for it. Uh, All I know is, like I say, they can't miss North America. If they're in Newfoundland, they can't miss North America. And, And I'm sure the St. Lawrence would have been extremely attractive simply because they, you can, it's obvious that it enters a continent, that you know it allows them to penetrate a continent. So it's no surprise that there's a runestone in Kensington, Minnesota. Oh, by the way, uh, uh, while well, I mentioned, I, I meant to mention that um, the, the most recent, one of the one of the reasons, of course, that they re- that mainstream archaeology rejected the Kensington runestone in the first place is because it was found by a person of Scandinavian descent. And that's just too good to be true. Who's he kidding? But uh, the most recent, uh, in, in, in 1898, shortly after he moved to Minnesota, uh, and that area was wilderness 50 years earlier. I mean, there was no one living there, but uh, at least from uh, Western nations. But uh, the most recent studies of physical weathering of the Kensington Runestone. Now, the weathering stopped in 1898. Once it was found, it was no longer left exposed to the elements. And this farmer who supposedly hoped that he sold it for a few bucks, so it's not like he was trying to make any money off his quote-unquote hoax. But uh, the, the weathering stopped in 1898 because it was unprotected. Uh, but the latest weathering studies by geologists, who should know weathering a little better than archaeologists, uh, suggest that it had that those characters on there have to have weathered for at least 50 to 200 years before the stone was found. And these are pretty definitive studies that are hard to refute, really hard to refute. They're studying particular minerals such as mica and, and determining a baseline for how, uh, you know, what's the rate of weathering for mica. And they're studying the mica in the, rune, in the Kensington runestone and discovering that some of the characters have to show weathering of at least 50 to 200 years. So that puts it well before this guy ever arrived in Minnesota. It doesn't put it back as far as the Vikings, uh, but it doesn't preclude that the weathering might, in fact, be much older than show much more uh, age. No, it just says it? that at least 50 to 200 years it was weathering. Now, that, if, you, if I recall the story correctly, he dug it up in his field. Yes, he did. So and that means if it was buried, it's not going to get weathered that much more. So, that, that's tr- so that's it was weathered for two for fifty to two hundred years before it became buried. Excellent point. Excellent point. That's absolutely right. Excellent point. He, and he found it with a, a tree root growing around it, and, and uh, unfortunately, uh, but uh, the tree is very, very old. 
but because he removed it, uh, there was he removed the proof that this extremely old root was growing around the tree. Uh, but nonetheless, no, you're absolutely right. For uh, he did dig it up, and so there was probably a considerable length of time, centuries, where it was not being weathered. So yeah, that would explain. That would bring it back. That's just my closer. observation, Charlie. Well, that would bring it back closer to the actual date on the stone, which is 1362. Okay. So good observation. <laughs> it's just it's it's fascinating to me too uh how a lot of people will hear about these sites they don't take into account things such as you know there was a root growing around it or or the fact that it was buried in the field and uh, i think it's good that we can put these minds together to talk about the subject and bring up some of these questions well, yeah absolutely because you know the kensington stone got a bad rap right from the start simply because it was found by a person of scandinavian descent I and mean, we, it got a bad rap day yeah. one for that reason and that reason alone. And we see that in New England as well. Look at the people who are the biggest critics. Uh, you have Godfrey at the Newport Tower. You have Vesalius up at Mystery Hill. Neither one of them is particularly well-versed in New England or Indian or European. They're all South American experts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Philip Means, for that matter, with the biggest fan of the Newport Tower. Also, these are all South Americans. We don't have... People trained in European studies. We don't have people trained in American Indian studies actually doing the work up there. We've got whoever we can get hold of at the time. Yeah, yeah, good point. And what does an Inca specialist know about Neolithic art <laughs> in Spain? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Charlie, we thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, well, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Oh, we'd love to have you back on in the future. Well, that, that sounds great. Anytime you want. All right, thank you very much. Okay, take care now. You too. Bye bye. And yeah, we're coming up uh, just about on the end of the program here tonight. So I hope uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, our discussion about ancient stone sites in New England and elsewhere, which I knew would be part of it because essentially, you know, you got to think if there's one here and there's one somewhere else, they are somehow connected. Well, you can't talk about New England without ending up at their Kensington runestone. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a, a fact of life. And and one of the other things we want to talk about too, Dave, is is another one of the many hats that you uh, wear and how we first uh, came into contact with each other. And that is uh, you're actually the webmaster for a, a pretty famous guy around these parts. Well, I like to think he is. Um, <laughs> that's Bill Moomy from Lost in Space, although I shouldn't actually say that. He prefers to be known as Bill Moomy the musician now. And a fine musician he is. His material is very, very good, very folksy guitar material. Um, I took over the website, actually, from Angela Cartwright, his co-star on Bill TV show of We Won't Mention Again by Name. <laughs> and um, we've really tried to concentrate more on his contemporary music. He's, he's touring Southern California. He has a lot of songs and other albums. He's worked with America. He's worked with Rosemary Clooney. Of course, his best buddy in the whole wide world is Miguel Ferrer, so that kind of helps a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see from the, behind the scenes what this man actually is capable of doing. He has his own studio and his own house. He writes the music, he records it, he sends it out to this one or that one. They mix it, and it's just, particularly his latest album, is just absolutely magnificent. And, of course, one of our favorites of all time has got to be Fishheads. Who course. isn't a fan of Fishheads? Of course. And that was good, too, because that was kind of like a, they created a whole new persona for themselves uh, in that group Barnes & Barnes. You know, they created characters of the last name Barnes to... Was that really to hide the fact that it was Bill, or was it more just uh, for a lark? I think it's a little bit of both, actually. Um, the story Dr. Demento tells is that 
he actually went over to Bill's house the first time to meet them after playing their music for several years. And it was only when he was sitting in the living room with all this lost in space memorabilia <laughs> that he suddenly realized that this was Bill Moomy he was talking to. And and now Bill's daughter is an actress. Uh, she has appeared with him in the new Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, well, the the remake they did kind of creepy, creepy episode. And and so she seems to have the the family talent. Uh, how much acting does Bill do these days? Bill is a little more pick and choose right now. Um, he's he really wants to concentrate more on the music. This is not to say if somebody gave him a script, he wouldn't do it. He uh, he just did an appearance on uh, Miguel's show, Crossing Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, last season, and I he hasn't done a lot since. He does a lot more voiceover work for A and E Biography. And that sort of thing. And Liliana's bringing the checks home right now with Santa <laughs> Claus 3. So not really a lot of incentive to go out and find work either. Well, we are going to have him on in the future along with uh, Mark Zakri who wrote the Twilight Zone Companion. And we're going to talk about the Twilight Zone, a whole episode here. Matt, you want to say something? Yeah. He'll always be Lanier to me. He, he, he has great stories about that show. And the last day of shooting, they actually let the families come in. And Liliana was... Four tops, so that meant Seth was six. They didn't recognize him in the makeup. <laughs> Scared the poor kids. Therapy, the whole thing. And of course, his co- his co-star from from Lost in Space is right in our earshot here uh, in Middleborough. He's now a teacher at, at a private school there. Yes, Mark Goddard. And uh, hopefully, we can get him on the phone as well when we get Bill on. I think that'd be a nice treat. I don't know. I don't know how much they're in touch with each other these days, but. Mark, I know, is in touch with Marta Kristen, who is another person I do the website for, so I'm, I'm all over the Lost right. in Space people. <laughs> uh, so I know they're in touch a lot by phone, setting up appearances and whatnot. Bill, Bill is Bill and Angela, Mark and Marta, that sort of thing. It's kind of broken off into little clicks, it, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of a phone tree situation. All right. Well, I mean, and we're definitely looking forward to having Bill on. And I know my wife's looking forward to that. She doesn't usually listen to the show, but she's like, I'll come in and be on the panel for that show because she has probably seen uh, his episodes countless times. What is it about redheads? I don't know. I I wish I knew because I'm not one. So I want to know what it is about the redheads. So that'll about do it for this episode of Spooky South Coast. Remember, if you want to order Dave's books, you can go to his website. At ancientstonesites.com. And we're linked up to it on SpookySouthCoast.com. Don't forget, Tuesday night you can come and see us in a sonnet. We'll have all that information up on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. And that's where you can also find all the information about the show all week long. We'd like to thank Dave Gowdsward for joining us tonight. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Uh, So until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. Stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least... Until yesterday begins again, tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, does it?
Uh, Let's get ready to rumble!